And this morning, I'd ask you to take a copy of God's Word in hand and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28, we'll look at verses 3 through 25 this morning. If you're using a Bible from the Pew Rack, you'll want to turn to page 250. Now, we have not been in 1 Samuel um, recently. I can, uh, in a moment, after the reading of God's Word, maybe give a word of explanation of why I chose this passage on this Sunday. Um, Before I read God's Word, let me give you just a little bit of context here on what we're looking at. 1 Samuel, the book, covers the transition from the period of judges to the rule of the monarchy in the nation of Israel. And 1 Samuel, the book, closes with the end of King Saul's life and the transition between the first king of Israel to the second king, David. And here we are coming right up to the end of King Saul's life. He's had a 40-year reign, a reign that began around 1049 BC, and as far as we can date it, it most likely ended around 1011 BC, and it is a tragic end. But in passages like this, it is God's Word, and it does have words of warning and encouragement for the people of God. And so before we read this passage, let us ask for the Lord's help in prayer. Please join me in prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken in your word, and we pray that you would amplify it in our hearing this morning, that it would drown out the voices of distraction, that it would drown out the voices of unbelief and doubt that have crept into our minds this past week. And may we start this new week being renewed according to your word. So we ask for your Spirit's help and the hearing and applying of this word that we might live for Christ's glory and that we might praise you all our days. So help us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel 28 beginning in verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor, 
So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know that Saul has, what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David." Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell out once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had fattened a calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants. And they ate. Then they rose and went, and went away that night. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. So, why this passage on this day? Well, uh, the task of preaching came late this, pre this uh, week for me. 
And I know that when you do get those assignments on late notice, you're supposed to have a psalm or maybe John 3.16 sermon in your back pocket and not this one. But this is a passage, having done work on it before, has been on my heart and was praying for an occasion which it would be appropriate to look at with you together at some point. Why is it? Well, there are a lot of curiosities that we will not be able to answer today. But one of the main purposes of this passage is to help us discern between the darkness and the light. It is a passage filled with warnings to stay away from the darkness and to not entertain it, imitate it, or play with it. We can be certain of that. That among giving the portrayal of King Saul's disturbing fall, it's meant to serve that purpose in the Christian. That we would have clarity between the light and the darkness and that we would flee the darkness and run to the light. Because we live in a day when light is called darkness and darkness is called light. And there's much work for Christians to do in the public square, proclaiming righteousness and truth to our neighbors for their good, for the good of our community, society, and nation. But we have to be reminded of those truths in our own hearts and seek to eradicate every bit of darkness in our own lives. So God in His Gracious condescension to us gives us stories like this in order that he may say, don't go the way of King Saul. I love you too much to abandon you to the darkness. I love you too much for you to be deceived by the darkness. Here's my word. It is for your instruction to keep your footing and the truth. So four truths from this passage this morning. Three of those truths will come by way of warning. And the last will be an encouragement. So the first warning we have here in 1 Samuel 28, we have the warning that unrepentant sin is corrosive. Unrepented sin is corrosive. We're at a point in this historical narrative where it is the near end of Saul's life, and through it we see his deteriorating character. One of the messages of the book is that All the people of Israel, they looked at the outward appearance, and when they asked for a king, they didn't consider the man's heart as God does. And so they chose this man, Saul, and he doesn't have the character required of office. And the pressures of leading God's people have caused him to crumble. When the pressure is on, you find out who this man 
really is. And here, the Philistines are at their doorstep again. And he is fearful and afraid. He is rotting from the inside out, and it's due to the corrosive nature of unrepentant sin. That sin becomes evident in Saul's life on the occasion earlier in his reign when he was to destroy the Amalekites, and he didn't. He kept some of the spoils, and he kept their king as a trophy of war, disobedient to the word of God that came through him from the prophet Samuel. And now the pressure's on, and the prophet's dead. Saul does not know what to do. And why? Well, as far as he can tell, God has gone silent. Look back at verse 6. It says, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. The prophet wasn't there. The Lord didn't speak to him through a dream. The Lord didn't speak to him through Urim. Now, you may say, what is Urim? Well, it's the Urim and the Thurim. It is what the priest held in the high priest's breastplate. It was two stones. And we're not sure exactly how they operated, but it was a way to discern the will of God. So in some way, they would take these stones out and possibly cast them on the ground, and it was either to give an indication or yes or no, but he is not receiving a message through that. And as the king of Israel, he did at some point do what he was supposed to do, and he kicked out all the mediums and necromancers. What's a medium? Well, a medium is a person who claims to have contact with spirits from the dead and to communicate between the dead and the living. A necromancer is quite simply a witch or a wizard, someone who communicates with the dead in order to predict the future. And now that God has gone silent, he's going to seek pagan ways in order to discern a way forward. Before really thinking about how tragic that is that the king of Israel would consult with the medium, let's really just think about the corrosive nature of sin in this man's life. His unrepentance has made him dull to the word of God over and over again. Throughout his life, he was unwilling to obey the word of God. And through that, the voice of God became quieter and quieter to King Saul. God is silent. Why? Saul has demonstrated that he is unwilling to submit to God's word and obey. Now, in this situation, it shouldn't have taken much for Saul to discern the Lord's will. Their enemy is at the door. He is to lead God's people in battle against their enemies. God shouldn't have had to tell him again to defend Israel against the Philistines. This is part of his job description as king. The story begins with God's silence. It is a judgment against Saul. God will speak to him one last time. But as he does, he just reiterates what he already told him through the prophet Samuel and is a word of final condemnation. It's a warning to each of us that when we tolerate our own disobedience, 
We become numb to the Word of God. Sin sears our conscience, and eventually it makes us deaf to the Word of God. You cannot expect to willingly live in unrepented sin and have access to the wisdom of God. We see something of Romans chapter 1 here being played out in the life of Saul where the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against Saul's ungodliness and unrighteousness. In his unrighteousness, he's suppressed the truth and therefore God is giving him up. For quite some time, Saul has done this and now here's the giving up. God is no longer restraining the progression of sin in Saul's life. Think about what it has made of this man. In verse 5, we see that he's a coward. He was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. He is now a coward because of sin more so than he was before. We see a man who is desperate in verse 7. So desperate that he seeks out a woman who is a medium that he might go to inquire of her. Looking for someone to communicate with the prophet Samuel. Imagine thinking, I didn't get much out of that sermon. Maybe I could go find a palm reader later today to help me. Or, you know, tonight let's ditch the Bible study, dim the lights, and break out the Ouija board. He's trying to inquire of the Lord, but now he's inquiring of a witch, a medium. It's made him a coward. It's made him desperate. It's, it's undignified. Verse 8. So Saul disguised himself. He betrays the dignity of his office to sneak across enemy lines to consult with this medium. He's a compromised man. Verse 9. The medium tells him, surely you know what God has done. He has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? She points out his hypocrisy of sorts. He's a compromised leader at this point. The corrosiveness of sin has made Saul into a desperate, undignified, hypocritical coward. And it will do the same to each of us if left unchecked and unrepented of. But it is the lie of the enemy that you and I can manage our sin. But we look at the life of Saul and we must be reminded of the progress of what it would do to our soul. We see this from the very beginning with Cain and Abel where Cain's anger towards the Lord rejecting his offer and receiving Abel's offer grows. It's an acid in his soul. And in short time, anger grows into murder. Genesis 4-7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is towards you. Is the warning the Lord gave to Cain. Sin cannot be managed. It will spread. Saul, I'm sure he never thought when he compromised in terms of defeating the Amalekites 
and disobeyed what the prophet Samuel had told him to do, that it would lead him to this point. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation and said, how did I end up here? And then you begin to unravel the path in which you then pursued darkness instead of light. The king of Israel consulting with the medium. Do you recognize the failure of sin management in your life? We all believe that we're not going to let our pet sin go too far. That we can control it. We can stop whenever we want. What sin is crouching at your door? Learn from the sad story of Saul about the progressive corrosiveness of sin and how it will destroy you from the inside out. Submit and obey to the voice of the Lord today. Sin cannot be managed. It must be repented of. Our second warning is that there is no middle ground between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Saul, the compromised king, has gone further than I'm sure he ever intended to go. And in a piece of literary genius, the, the author of 1 Samuel frames the life of Saul with a meal with the prophet Samuel. That's a good start. But then it ends with a meal with a medium. He has united himself to this medium. That is the great travesty. The king of Israel now seems to enter into some sort of union with this medium. Look at it. It's there in the text. Verse 10. Saul swears to her, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He swears by the name of the Lord her protection. And then she responds later in the text, in verse 21 and 22, to Saul, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. There is a bond. He has sworn to protect her. She obeys him. Now he obeys her. They kill a fattened calf. At first he resists the meal, but then he eats. It's almost something covenantal that is happening between the king of Israel and this medium. What a fall. But where else can he go? There is nowhere else to turn. The reality is it's either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. It's either the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. There's no middle ground and no partnership between the two. There is to be no connection between the two. Rejecting God has left Saul with Satan. And it becomes clear in the text when Samuel reminds him, Saul thinks he has two enemies at this point in his life. He thinks the Philistines are his enemies, and he thinks that the anointed 
David to be the next king as his enemy. And Saul, in between fighting the Philistines, is also trying to find David and to extinguish him, that he would no longer be a threat to his throne. But here in the text, Samuel reminds Saul that, oh, because of your disobedience, you have a greater enemy than the Philistines, a greater threat than David. It is God himself. Verse 16, the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy because there's no middle ground between darkness and light. You cannot in any way partner with the darkness and live in the light. 1 John, verse 5 and 6, this message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The first warning is the corrosive effect of sin. The second is that there's no middle ground between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. The third warning is that regret is not repentance. And if you look at verses 20 through 24, what do we see? We see a man who does express sorrow for his sin to some extent. There is an expression of grief where he's unwilling to eat and he's throwing himself on the ground. There is worldly sorrow for the situation that he has felt him find himself in. He is filled with fear. His strength has left him. For a while, he is unwilling to eat and he is terrified. He's filled with crippling regret, but it's not repentance. He knows he has sinned and he knows he deserves this condemnation. And yet, he does not turn from the sin and turn to the mercy of God. He does not argue with his sentence. He knows the truth. But there is no repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is a good thing for each of us to pray. That as we consider our sins and our guilt and our shame, do we have the godly grief that leads us to despise that sin and turn to Christ? Or are we merely devastated by the consequences that we are experiencing because of our sin? Regret is not repentance. And we see this pattern over and over in the life of Saul. And here it is at his very end. Those are our three warnings. But this passage is not all warning. We close with the encouragement here. And what is the encouragement that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 28? Is that the kingdom of God reigns over the kingdom of darkness. And you may say, Preacher, how did you get that? And where is that coming from in this passage? No, let me, let me show you. The power of the kingdom of God shines through the darkness here. 
What do I mean? Well, God is sovereign over wicked kings and the mediums who try to do their bidding. Isn't that what happens here in the passage? Did you notice it? What happens in verse 12? Well, the woman saw Samuel, and she cried out with a loud voice. Not the reaction you would expect from a professional witch, medium, necromancer, whatever this woman is. No, we're given the sense that she is shocked. She did not expect the seance or whatever she's doing to work. All of a sudden, when something comes to her, it is a, ah, and she is terrified. She cries out. It is the Lord at work. The Lord has sent Samuel back. Now, we can affirm that. That's what the text clearly says. The particulars, that's put it on your list to ask one day when you get to heaven. But I am certain that this is God sending back Samuel with this word of condemnation because it is the same exact word that Samuel has already spoken. It is not a new word. It is a true word that has already been spoken. The addition to it being, and what has promised to come upon you is now going to happen. But everything that Samuel says, it's consistent with what he's already told Saul, that the kingdom would be torn from him, that it would lead to his demise. Here it is. She realizes that she is dealing with Saul. This goes way beyond anything she's ever experienced. It is the word of God that still reigns over the lives of men in the darkest of hours. Rejecting God leaves you with Satan. Dabbling with darkness will ensnare you. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness are always in conflict until the end of the age. We are not to be confused. They are not equal opponents. The kingdom of God is more powerful than the kingdom of darkness Satan's kingdom in this world is temporary. God's kingdom rules over all and is without beginning or end. And Christ rescues the enemies of God from the kingdom of darkness. And he does it today. That's why we await for his return. He is still doing that work. Going behind enemy lines and transforming sinners into believers. Transforming rebels into worshipers. Pleading His own obedience in the place of their disobedience in order that they might be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into his kingdom. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Well, there's good news. The kingdom of God reigns over all, and the doors to the kingdom remain open through Christ. This morning, if you know yourself to be in the wrong kingdom, Christ says, repent, 
and enter into the kingdom of God through me. Those who are in the kingdom of God, we have an ambassador role among the enemies of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But it's distinct from ambassadors in our world today. Ambassadors in our world today, they go and they represent another country or kingdom, if you would. But they don't necessarily, in and of themselves, have permission to invite others into their kingdom. They're just representing their kingdom on foreign soil. But as ambassadors for Christ, we have the message of reconciliation that you can know God as Father through His Son, Jesus. And we are here representing another kingdom, inviting you to come into that kingdom with us. And so we need to put on our ambassador mindset as believers and constantly be in prayer when we see the darkness, to not be intimidated by it, but to believe that the power of the gospel is greater to overcome the darkness. There's a lot of ways we can think through this as believers in our world today. What if? What damage would be done to the kingdom of darkness if every time you and I drove by and we saw on someone's porch a rainbow flag this month, we asked the Lord to save them, to show compassion, to lift the blinders off their eyes? What if instead of just being grossed out by the darkness, we come and say that there's hope for anyone in Christ. And there's power in his name to free from vice and sin and addiction. The word of God is sufficient and powerful enough to navigate the darkness of our day. We have all we need in the gospel of Christ. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would show us where we have tolerated unrepentance in our own hearts and lives. And that by your Spirit, you would kill the sin that would corrode, that would sear our conscience, and that would deceive, and that would try to entice us to take pleasure in the darkness instead of the truth. 
And Lord, we ask that you would send us out as your ambassadors, hopeful, confident, not in ourselves, but in the one who conquered, confident that our enemy's fate is sealed and that our victor reigns and is returning. And so may we go forth with humble confidence as ambassadors for Christ, proclaiming the good news of reconciliation of sinners to God Almighty. It's in his name we pray, Christ our Lord. Amen.